0: Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 71 of the Petro Nerds Podcast. It is Thursday, January 26, 2023, and I have an absolute special treat for you here today. Um, I'm going to keep this intro very, very short and sweet because um, I gave a talk in Pittsburgh, or actually Cranberry, Pennsylvania, on January 12th, just two weeks ago today. Um, It went over extremely well. It was to the American Association of Drilling Engineers, the Appalachian chapter, so AADE. Um, and it was a great uh, the audience was fantastic um, I was given 45 minutes I think I went an hour and 15 minutes so went a little long but everyone seemed to really love it and everyone requested uh, the video of the slides now I'm not releasing the slides um, unless you know that's usually a client basis thing um, but I am releasing this video so I do encourage folks to uh, take watch the video because um, there's a, you can see stuff and I'm interacting so I encourage folks to both listen to this and watch it on YouTube as well um, but with that being said, today is Thursday, um, January 26, 2023. We are having WTI is really edging up there. So, if you're following the market um, from two weeks ago, we were, we've been edging up in prices. We are 81.22 for WTI. We are 87.64 for Brent. And Henry Hub is getting absolutely annihilated at 292. And we'll be going over that um, in later podcasts on why natural gas is getting crushed right now. Um, But just to point out, obviously, oil prices are, are are really pushing the envelope. There's a lot of optimism right now, on a massive amount of optimism on China. So, um, China still closed for the Lunar New Year. So is Taiwan. However, the Hong Kong, Hong Kong is open. And if you look at the, um, if you look at Hong Kong and you look at the trading, there's been a. a Billions, hundreds of billions of dollars recovered in just 2023 alone. So, in less than a month, a lot of money has flown back. And so, you're seeing some massive amount of money flowing back, and a lot of bets uh, on the market on this. Now, the tricky thing is with this is that, so all this uptick in oil prices is, um, is betting on Chinese opening up and, and China increased demand. And the tricky side is what this means for inflation. And if this can push up, if this can push up inflation, obviously pushing up oil prices is inflationary. And the Fed here in the US is still fighting st- more sticky inflation, which is rent and housing um, as also um, very high and still double digit uh, food price inflation. So that's serious. Uh, I would also note that I just listened to Numera, the bank, um, on CNBC World, and you know, they were actually calling that we, you know, for them technically the U.S. is went into recession in December. They're calling for that. They think the data is lagging, um, and they also pointed out they've done a they've done some research on looking at countries, individual countries, um, and the factors that that dominate to actually go into a, a deeper or harder landing, a real, basically a real recession, um, and not just the softer landing that everyone's talking about. And they talk about, you know, what are the prerequisites? And some of them are, um, uh, of them are this really high rapid uptake in housing and then massive household accumulated debt. And we do have that in the U.S. So they talk about Japan, the U.S., um, and New Zealand being all the countries on, on the developed world side that can basically could be looking at a much harder landing. Um, I would also note the last thing before I'm going to let this all, uh, we'll get into the presentation is Amazon. You, I talked last week about Amazon is all, uh, is doing, um, is, is cutting jobs. Microsoft is cutting jobs. Um, Google's cutting jobs. Uh, Goldman Sachs is cutting jobs. Banks are cutting jobs. So you're seeing everything from real estate to tech to banking, where you're seeing the, the white collar workers actually losing their jobs. Now that's hasn't started. We haven't started seeing that in the data yet, but that's very real. Um, and Amazon has said they're actually selling real estate in San Francisco. I think that's pretty important to realize is that, and pretty important to appreciate for the market is that when big tech companies are selling real estate, that's telling you something about the market and it's not good. So I think following where these job layoffs are and then you know the optimism that everyone has in the U.S. on the fact that we won't lose jobs is, is partly because we don't have enough people entering the workforce and we still have a lot of job openings. But we also have a lot of folks that... Um, w- a lot of companies that are talking about, hey, we're not going to, or an assumption that we have a lot of companies in the service sector that aren't going to let folks go because they're so worried about getting people back. And there could be a reality where that, push comes to shove and prices are just too high and the economy sluggish enough that they end up doing that. So I would be cautious about that. Um, but with that, I am going to say we're going to jump right into this presentation. Um, this is soup to nuts, everything from U.S. shale and production to the U.S. economy, to what's going on, to the global economy, um, to the war in Ukraine and a nice close on ESG and China and everything that's happening there. So I really hope you guys enjoy it. The feedback has been absolutely fantastic. I encourage you to leave, uh, feed, you know, a uh, Five stars on on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you're listening to this. I greatly appreciate it, and talk to you soon, folks. Bye. Well, thank you guys so much. I'll start out by saying um, I well, I love coming up here, so I genuinely love. I mean, we were talking last night at dinner that I like Midland, too. I love Pump Jacks, but I really do enjoy coming up here. Um, It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm not very good at jokes, so I'm not funny, hence the nerdy. And the glasses Um, so if we have technical difficulties I won't be telling jokes Um, but I can promise you a couple things and that is that I have way too many slides and I'm going to talk fast and I'm going to talk a lot and I'll probably go over my time so those things you can know just in advance Um, but if there's anything you want to dive into because I'm covering you know, the global economy, you will shale everything in about 45 minutes. So if there's anything we don't get into, please feel free to, we'll we'll address it in Q&A. Make sure to ask really hard questions. This is free consulting essentially, so, you know, dive in. And you can always hit me up afterward and we can chat about it. Um, So with this, I'll start with, you know, not a a crazy exciting title, but if I was to characterize 2023 in just the first 12 days we've been here, it is definitely um, uncertainty and their volatility, I mean, If I were to look back at 2022, I would say 2022 is volatility, and right now we're in this ebb and flow of uncertainty. Obviously, the stock market wants to go higher. It always does, um, and there's a number of reasons for that. But that doesn't mean the economy um, that's the underlying health of the economy is is anywhere reflective of what the stock market's doing. Um, So major takeaways, what we're going to talk about today, I'm going to front load this actually talking about U.S. shale, and that's because in case I talk too much and I don't get through it, Um, We will have front-loaded this with you a shale. So we'll talk about the production growth because what you guys have done, the folks, you guys in this room at ADE, AADE, the you know the engineers on the drilling side of this business, which I absolutely love and respect, um, and love the engineering side of this business. What you guys do in this room, you guys have dramatically contributed to energy output in, in the US and energy output in the world. And so when we see lower natural gas prices, why that may not be good for business, um, it's, it is good for the global economy, it's good for the US economy, and you guys are, are actually doing that on a day-to-day basis. So it's really important to sort of contextualize contextualize this and put it in context of what this means of production here, production throughout the U.S., high natural gas prices. Um, We have never seen high. We actually haven't seen high natural gas prices over the course of the shale revolution. So there's a lot of nuances that are taking place right now. And sort of since COVID 2021 and 2022 that we haven't experienced. So we'll talk about all those and then we'll talk about, you know, the public you know, ESG pressure and investor pressure. Um, I, if you've heard me talk or you've listened to the podcast or you've seen me um, actually here in the Marcellus or elsewhere. I do talk a lot about ESG. I don't look at it the same way as most people. I very much disagree with it. I have a very, very hard time with um, public operators really touting the ESG narrative, um, and we'll get into that as well. And that's largely because US oil and gas production, the production side of the business, contributes 1% of US CO2 emissions. So if everyone dropped their CO2 emissions to zero, um, it wouldn't really do much. So I don't really think this is about CO2, and that's why I go a little bit crazy on that. Um, and I think it's bucketed in with investor pressure, and it's really important to understand that as well, and we can actually see that in the data. And then separate from that, we are gonna talk a little bit about the war in Ukraine. We'll talk about inflation, You know, the context of inflation. Obviously war is not good, um, but an ongoing war is pretty bad because it creates a lot of uncertainty. Um, and then we have inflation, and. I th- I'm not sure everyone understands inflation to the level that they need to. Especially today, we got our inflation read. It is lower than expect, or it was expected to be lower, but it- we're about basically at six and a half percent. Yes, inflation is coming down, but inflation is still there, meaning higher costs for everything still exist, and that has severe ramifications not just to the U.S. economy but to the global economy. And we will talk about that as well. I think it's really important to appreciate, you know, if you go to the grocery store and you have sticker shock for buying chicken or eggs, you're not the only one. And if you think about the bottom half of the US consumer, inflation has really been felt because if you spend most of your income on food and fuel, you have felt inflation more than almost anyone else. So if you think about that for the US, now think about that globally. We are one of the richest countries in the entire world. So if you think about the bottom half of the globe, when you're spending most of your money on food and fuel, you're really feeling inflation. So even if inflation's coming down, and the only reason inflation has come down this month and the month prior is because of energy prices, the big drivers in lowering inflation in the read we just got this morning was lower gasoline prices, um, and that's really serious. And you guys are are directly contributing to that in, in a positive way of helping lowering prices. Um, energy, geopolitics, and power super super intertwined. There's nothing more. I mean, if if you were to say, what is the single biggest advantage the US has. I mean, it's many, right? Institutions, rule of law, infrastructure, you name it, economics, we've got a lot of of good things going. But we also are the largest natural gas and largest oil producer in the entire world by far. And that natural gas production is extremely, extremely important. And that's why you know, here in, in the Appalachian Basin, in the Marcellus, you're producing 35 billion cubic feet per day of gas. That is nothing to scoff at, that is a huge amount, that is more than that is more than China actually consumes um, total, that is more than, um, that is basically the imports that Europe has had to import um, over the course that they were exposed to on the import side. So it's a big number and it's why geopolitical leverage and energy production really, really matter um, when we're looking at this. And we will talk about the Russia-China dynamics a little bit because I think we, when we talk about Russia and we talk about this war in Ukraine, not enough attention is paid to China and the role they have in it um, and how, and then China 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 has a big role within ESG and climate change and everything going on there. And you know, in all of this, I I would just encourage everyone to be thinking about risk and thinking about. Um, business and economics and putting your business and contextualizing it um, this may seem very doom and gloomy um, and I don't mean it to be doom and gloomy because I'm I'm pretty pessimistic about the economy however um, with all that being said uh, knowledge is power and there's a lot of opportunity that can be pulled from this when you really understand what's going on in the market so oil and gas prices in the economy Um, I've been showing this slide for a while because I think it's really important to look just back at, this is just Henry Hub and WTI, and appreciating that we have um, where we were sort of in 2008, obviously we had a big price spike, and, and I always put 2008 to get people to understand, you know, 2008 we had Lehman Brothers, we had oil, we had inflation, we had oil price shocks, and then it came down. But unemployment didn't peak. You know, when we saw the recession in 2008, unemployment and the real pain didn't happen until you know the peak of unemployment didn't happen until 2010. So we have to realize when we say, "Oh my gosh, are we in a recession?" Um, and it doesn't always feel like we're in a recession because we're going out to eat and we're still doing things. You still live. It, recession is is just like every other day. It's just it looks a little different. And so I think we have to be a little careful of asking whether or not we're in recession and realizing that um, the higher unemployment has not and that some of the pains in the economy have not actually hit yet. Uh, but that being said, we are. this is the oil and natural gas prices and um, where we're at today. So we have come down considerably. And part of that is because of production, because we're producing a lot. And also part of it is the economy. So crude oil prices, this was this morning. We have ratcheted up pretty significantly because we were we were hanging in low 70s. 78 and change, uh, 84 and change for Brent. Um, something I want to point out here is that these bars on the bottom, um, this is your traded volumes. And you'll notice something that it gets really thin as we get out here in 2022. And I think the thinly traded volumes in crude oil are extremely important to think about because that means you exacerbate volatility. You can have a $5 swing up or down in a moment's notice. And part of it's because, A lot of people have left trading for oil and gas. Um, One, because it's not favorable, people don't like it for the ESG reasons and everybody's anti-oil. The other part is people got burned on trading Um, and we just have a lot of algorithmic or computerized trading. And so you'll see that the algorithm or that computerized trading will see a headline and trade off of it. And so when you have these thin volumes though, you have these exacerbated swings and moves. And um, that can create, obviously, volatility. And it's important to think about because we have heard OPEC and the Saudis talk about it a bit of saying, hey, we may not be reflecting supply, you know, our supply and demand um, may not be what we're seeing in terms of price. And that is really important when we're thinking about where prices and is that reflecting um, supply and demand fundamentals. Okay, natural gas prices. I mean, natural gas prices are a big component of why um, gasoline prices going down, but also natural gas prices coming down are a pretty big component of, of our inflation indicator. Um, so down to under four bucks is a big deal um, even a bigger deal is the fact that we saw such high natural gas prices and we touched ten dollars in mcf over the course of the year and you guys in the marcellus you probably appreciate that more than anyone of that's a pretty high figure um, and i know that you know you don't necessarily get that at the gate price and you're not necessarily getting that here and it gets discounted but we've also seen lower trading volumes on the gas side that's very important um, impacts differentials considerably but that lower uh, simply having lower price for natural gas, a lot of that is storage and good weather. So we had cold, we had all of us experienced this rough um, Christmas winter storm and then since then things have been warmer and we have seen natural gas inventories go up. Um, and really that's because we have a lot of production. I mean, when you're looking at the production in the US and I'll show you uh, shortly, 122 billion cubic feet per day, massive amount of production, significant production growth. And that is because of high natural gas prices are driving lots of folks in the oil plays to actually focus on, or, not necessarily focused on gas, but they're very OK getting associated gas. Um, and so that's driving up net gas production, and um, that is contributing to lower prices. And we also have one of the LNG facilities is still out, um, is still not exporting. And so that's, that's helping as well. Um, but we've seen global LNG prices or global net gas prices. That's European um, Dutch TTF, dollars per MMBTU. That's come down considerably. We hit 100 bucks an MCF in August of last year. That has come down to 20 bucks significant significant volatility um in the gas space i don't think that story is over i don't i i think that um you know putin could still push and push some levers and I'm, I'm not sure that's that that story has been completely written now if we look at u.s production and i i know this might be a little messy to see back here but this is just u.s production and oil prices and i always show this slide i, I want people to visualize contextualize and understand where prices are at and where they were, and the fact that we always tend to do more with less um, in the shale space, and especially in the U.S. You know, we think about this from a price standpoint, production standpoint, but also when we get into the rig side, thinking about the actual rig count and doing more with less, and sort of the tranches of rigs and activity, and where we're at in the in the U.S. So we're at almost about basically 12.4 million barrels per day. So we are clawing our way back to that 13 million barrel day figure. But if you actually look at all of liquids output, so uh, production of crude oil, natural gas, natural gas liquids, we are record highs for the US. Um, So by far and away, the largest uh, liquids producer in the entire world by by a massive amount. Um, And we've clawed our way back. A lot of that's because what's going on the Permian. But if you just look back 2000, 2007, we averaged $44 a barrel. Uh, 2008 to 2013, we averaged $88 a barrel, so that was our hurrah. And then 2014 all the way through 2021, the average was $58 a barrel, and we saw massive production growth in that space. Um, And then we obviously we've seen we saw have seen negative oil prices. Now we have um, higher prices. We're down in the 70s. So just putting that in the back of your mind um, because it matters for what private companies are doing. It matters for what public companies are doing. And this is natural gas production in the US, um, which is just, it is truly remarkable given that we only have 152 rigs targeting dry natural gas and we have have 122 billion cubic feet per day of gross withdrawals. Now most of you guys probably know that the, the global oil market is a 100 million barrel day market. You know, the demand is about 100 million barrels a day, the supply is about 100 million barrels a day. And for natural gas, it is 400 BCF a day. The globe produces and consumes 400 billion cubic feet per day. And we are producing 122 billion cubic feet per day of that 400. That is massive, absolutely massive and has a huge and meaningful impact, not just on our economy, but the global economy as well. Um, And so the ability to permit facilities, get a pipeline built, export this stuff is absolutely huge and it cannot be underscored enough in terms of the leverage and power dynamics that and the capacity that has um, and but I mean it is really important to realize these high natural gas prices have driven that production higher because we're seeing this in um, obviously the recount is still dominated by oil but they're getting that gas with it so oil recount that's in red um, and I know most people say the recount is irrelevant I think it's kind of relevant to actually stare at it a little bit for a minute and that's because you know, this is where we were in 2011, 2012, 2014. Super, super high rig count. That came down, that cratered. We only flipped. We only actually you know, had more horizontal rigs drilling than vertical rigs. That only changed in 2014. So it took that whole move, it took the show revolution to 2014 and a downturn in prices for horizontal rigs to actually flip and dominate the rig count from verticals. Then we have you know, the period that I started my business that you guys have all felt not very fun up through 2016. And then we come back, and we've sort of been at this level. And obviously, we dropped with COVID. And now we're back. And with all the rig efficiencies and all the much longer laterals that we've drilled and all the efficiency gains that we had really over the course of 2021, before we had massive inflation and, and real tightness in 2022, we probably had more rigs, it, technically speaking, and we're doing more with less. So this is probably the new normal. And it's just that tranche there. Um, I'm not, I don't think we really need more rigs necessarily. Um, we have a lot of tightness from an inflationary standpoint, the ability to get people in the field. Um, all that stuff is very real. But actually needing more rigs is not necessarily something we, we're requiring right now. And the average US lateral length, this is on average. This is lower 48, all, all average. We're over 10,000 feet on average here in the Marcellus. You're seeing seeing around 13,000 feet on average. That's what the Marcellus is doing in Midland, where it's a little it's a little more shallow. It's extremely well known in the Permian. You're seeing north of 11,000 foot on average, um, and you hear companies continually drilling um, three mile long laterals and that is also really impressive and important to think about because five years ago, people said that wasn't possible. You're not gonna be able to complete the toe of those wells. We're not gonna get that production back. And we are. I mean, every time, no matter what in this business, when you tell somebody they can't do it, they do it. Um, and it just takes time. It takes the right people doing it. Um, when we had deeper, you know, the Permian Basin in the Delaware um, you have very deep spots that's very thermally mature it's very um, it's very hot Um, and there were drillers that weren't experienced that didn't want to touch it and now it's very common to drill extremely deep wells um, in the Delaware and that really depth that depth that thermal maturity that gives you a nice gas drive gives you a nice oil production Um, and now gas is really sexy so you know that's all great Um, but all of that really matters in terms of this is not the, you know, everything has changed, little bits of changes. Um, and even for folks in this business, it's hard to like follow this and track it and understand all these little nuances. But it's even harder for folks, I think, in Saudi Arabia to truly understand what's actually happening here on the ground. So, oil production, again, I'm just, I showed you this figure before, um, but really driven by, it is being really driven by the Permian. Um, and there's a number of different reasons for that. But that's part of that reason is, you know, where you have public and private companies, where you have a lot of private companies, we've driven up a lot of activity. And even if the production is not in the hands of all those private companies, incrementally they've added production. But unfortunately in places like North Dakota, and places in the Rockies, we've had a lot of public companies. And where you have lots of public companies, you've had that investor pressure, you've had that ESG pressure, and they were slow to, you know, put their feet on the gas and, and go. Whereas the private companies were, we've had private companies, companies in the Delaware Basin, based in Colorado that had been drilling throughout. They drilled throughout 2020, which, quite frankly, that's what everybody should have been doing. Capture the low day rates, drill throughout 2020, actually complete your wells as well, just don't bring them onto production. But very, very few companies actually did that. So that's production growth. I'll break this out, and you can see where it's really coming from. Um, but the US is the world's powerhouse. So we, this is our exports. So if that's our exports are crude oil in red. Um, we have That's gasoline, diesel in there as well natural gas liquids um, and exports of and petroleum coke as well. And you can see we're basically at 10 million barrels per day of crude oil exports um, and, and liquids and product. Now, yes, we import some. But the point is is that 10 million barrels a day is on par with Saudi Arabia on a very, very good day. Um, so that's something that is really, really important to understand because you, you don't hear it on major media outlets, you certainly you don't read it in the Wall Street Journal, you don't read it in the Financial Times, you don't hear it on, on CNBC, you don't hear it on Bloomberg, you don't hear it from the White House, you don't hear it from anybody that we are the largest crude oil uh, producer but also exporter as well. And I, I do have a bone to pick with a lot of operators, and it's important to throw this out. I'll re-put this slide at the end when we talk about ESG a little bit more. but. Everybody jumped on the ESG bandwagon and the net zero bandwagon. And so all every from me, medium sized independents to large independents to majors all jumped on the ESG bandwagon. Part of that was because of the big shareholder shakeups that we had in, um, in 2021 in May, where we had from Exxon to Chevron to Shell all in the same day actually. Um, but everybody jumped on the, the net zero bandwagon and put out a nice slide and said, you know, I call it the iHeart net zero slide because everyone did it, and I don't think this was the smartest thing to do. I think you should have been drilling for more oil and gas. I'm not saying you do it right; you you go willy nilly. You do it the right way, and obviously you do all this stuff. But the emphasis on this and the dollars that companies are spending on ESG stuff and lower carbon or lower emission stuff, a lot of that is lower energy or lower BTU output. And that has a meaningful impact and has helped contribute to this energy shortage globally and inflation and real problems within the economy. And that is very serious. And I think oil companies and natural gas companies need to understand their role in this. And it's also important because no one else is gonna advocate for this industry. If if oil and gas companies cannot do it themselves, then we're kind of screwed. So oil and gas companies need to be able to advocate for themselves and talk about the industry in a positive fashion, and this stuff does not help. So permit approvals. Um, This is the most anti-oil and gas uh, production administration we've had. Um, in terms of a, a political office, those in, in the White House, that we've never experienced this. Not, we didn't have this under Obama, um, even anyone prior to him. Um, so we've never seen anything quite like this on the, you know, the anti-oil and gas movement. Um, now, how that's materialized, obviously, we've sort of bucked the trend in production, but that doesn't mean there it hasn't been an uphill battle. So it's production growth in spite of the administration, not because of them some of the stuff same happened under obama but most of that was rhetoric and they didn't do anything this is just permit approvals for federal land bureau of land management um i just put this in red that's that's pre-obama in red um trump and then biden or sorry that's trump in red and biden in blue and you can see we've had a pretty strong drop off in federal approved permits um so the problem with this is that we're just not increasing these permits, and if you have a permit that expires, under, up until um, this administration, if you had a federal permit that was expiring, you could just you could put it back in and, and you could get it reapproved very easily. We don't have that now. You cannot get a federal permit approved. If it's expiring and you haven't had a chance to drill it, you're not going to be able to drill it. It's, they're going to let it expire. <clears throat> and that's very serious because you, know, you can turn on the TV, you can hear the administration say, well, oh, you have 9,000 permits and you haven't drilled them. Well, anyone in the industry knows that that's not exactly how the oil and gas business works. And you don't just drill every permit that you have. You have to. You, I mean, one, the business evolves over the course of the time, and your understanding of those wells might be maybe you should drill them, maybe you shouldn't. Um, but you drill your the stuff that's going to make the most money first. And so it, it's it's not a positive thing even for for just revenues from a federal standpoint. But it's also it's just a very it's a very bad look for um, for the administration and for long-term oil and gas output. So. Day one, though, was suspending all permitting on federal land, so including uh, including Indian lands, which was not legal. Um, but that was the day one. So we set up, the administration sort of set up this, you know, if, if people want to talk about where is the government on this, it's not for oil and gas, because they started this day one. And they were making that a very, a very, very clear message. So day one was we suspend all permits and they actually revoked if you got a permit on january 20th or the day biden came into office it was actually revoked now that changed about two months later you know after the politics stuff subsided they started uh, approving permits but then day seven was the uh, executive order on climate change on 14008 and everything all new leases were on federal land were paused so we don't have lease sales anymore we don't i mean is a bit banana to think we don't have any lease sales on federal land anymore. We don't have them in the Gulf of Mexico, we're not doing this. This is a really, really big deal to states with federal land, to Wyoming, to Montana, to Alaska. This is a huge deal with long-term lasting consequences. And it also means in terms of oil and gas companies that want to invest in the U.S., this is problematic because you're not investing on federal land. And then day 30 was rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. That's a really big deal because that folds into the net zero stuff that on the, on the Paris Climate Accord side, as well as uh, the International Energy Agency pushing net zero. And OK, so Strategic Petroleum Reserve, we've also this is pretty unprecedented as well. Um, and while I'm not super bullish on oil prices for a number of different reasons, I would say this is teeing us up for a more bullish scenario. Because if we have any kind of volatility in, in uh, supply and demand dynamics uh, throughout the course of the year, which we could easily have, we have drained our SPR massively. Um, and this has not happened yet. A lot of different administrations, uh, Republican, Democrat, can di- they often dip into the SPR piggy bank because it's, it's a way to make money. Um, but it usually nothing has moved the needle. And then you see during this administration where you just drained it massively. Um, and that was to help you know a desperation in sort of trying to get oil prices down, trying to get um, gas prices down. The problem was is that it's really about diesel prices and I've seen the diesel prices here you guys are still north of five dollars a gallon which is still really really high and we have a pretty big spread between gasoline and diesel so the problem was it wasn't just oil output that they needed because I don't think this administration or many folks in DC really understand how the oil market works and it is about production and it is about supply but it's also about refineries and the entire market and we lost um, over a million barrels a day of refining capacity in the US, we lost a massive amount of refining capacity globally, and we've seen and Russia has has exported a little bit less of refined product, China's exporting less refined product, and we have uh, outages in France, and we have strikes in France with Total, and all of that collectively, a few hundred thousand barrels a day here, a few hundred thousand barrels a day there, all that has added up to having shortages, in, Shortage might be a rough term, but tightness in the diesel market globally. Um, and so I wouldn't say it's all for naught, but this didn't probably have the impact I think the, the administration certainly wanted to or thought it would um, because they're not controlling the refining side of the business. Now natural gas exports, just so you can see this, this that orange line is our LNG exports. So you can see that has really ratcheted up. Um, one of those green lines you see on the right. The reason why this rushed up is because net gas prices. If we're selling them abroad from an LNG perspective, you're getting 16 bucks an MCF. So that's massive. That's absolutely huge. Um, obviously, very very meaningful when you're used to getting two bucks or, or three bucks an MCF. And, um, and then even that's pipeline exports in purple. So in total, we're exporting about 20 BCF a day. We've hung around, on average, this 12 BCF a day mark for crude oil exports. Um, we can increase. As, as you guys know, we can increase this. We have about 14 BCF a day right now of capacity. Our capacity is ramping up a little bit. Um, but we really need a pipeline out of the Mars cells to come down to the Gulf to actually help increase this. So that's our LNG capacity, which I just mentioned. So the global LNG market. Another thing, just put this in your in your back pocket for future reference, um, 50 BCF a day. I mean, LNG is still a new market. Exporting liquefied natural gas, you know, putting natural gas that we, we have to compress and we have to put it on a pipe and we got to ship it. It's not an easy business um, and it is still very new. So this is only a 50 BCF a day global market and China is taking 11 BCF a day but Again, 11 BCF a day. I mean, we have companies producing nearly 11 BCF a day here in the US. So it's not a lot, um, but it has grown. And so 50 BCF a day total globally, it's still a pretty new nascent market. Um, that we have to appreciate and contextualize how, how this has taken place over time. We've had a, a significant ramp up. Obviously, this is 2021. So 2022 data is going to be higher, with Europe taking more LNG um, imports. And then this also tells you a lot about energy security, right? is that natural gas is not something, given we didn't export a lot of this, we didn't put it on water before, um, because you want to produce your own natural gas and you want to consume it at home, because it's a lot easier. You pipe this stuff around, you have to compress it. And this is why coal, starts becoming pretty attractive from an energy security standpoint. Because coal, you can just shovel it up, and you can set it next to your coal fire plant. You may not have to ever use it, but if you need it, it's there. You can put it on a truck. You can put it on a rail car. You don't have to compress it. You don't have to put it on a tank. And this has had huge consequences for the world. This has helped drive up diesel prices because all the tankers are moving from the U.S. to Europe now. And that's driven up tanker prices. That's driven up, the you have to actually put diesel in those tankers to actually ship it. Lots of, um, every time we move a needle on something like this and you have something this big that's moving like this war in Ukraine and all the impacts from it, there's lots of consequences from that. And it is impacting our business on a number of different levels. So that's your refining capacity that I mentioned. That's your spread in your diesel and your gasoline prices, that diesel prices are still pretty high. Yes, everything's come down a little bit, but you still have this pretty big gap between gasoline and diesel. And that red line is refining capacity. And so that's how much we, we lost over a million barrels a day of refining capacity during COVID um, when negative, we had negative oil prices, we had lost demand, and we had refineries just shutting down left, right, and center. This happened not just in the US, but this happened globally. And that has had huge, huge consequences for the diesel market and for everybody this you know, last year, especially when everybody's ramping up. And it wasn't just ramping up. It's not like it wasn't just driving. We had the increase in prices that we had, not from last year, that started before that, from the fall of 2021, started because we had increases in electricity prices and because natural gas prices went up and Europe started flipping and taking natural gas out and started burning diesel for their power generation. And that drove up, that started the drive in driving up um, diesel prices and driving up oil prices. Okay, switching back years, now we're going back into the, the um, into the U.S. This is this, is this public-private thing. I, I and I like to put it in color so people can see it. I think it's really important to realize in, in some of the nuances and evolution taking place in the SHIELD space. So, private rigs are in purple. Public rigs are orange. Um, uh, also, the colors of Petronor just conveniently. Um, but you can see that the privates are kind of everywhere, right? And um, the publics are very concentrated. Makes sense. You know, they've got their they've got their um, all their ducks in a row, no pun intended. Um, but they have they have their assets corded up. They're very concentrated. It's in good acreage. Um, but we can see the purple guys everywhere else. So people say, oh, you know, if I show this, if I show this slide abroad, people say, oh, look, those aren't going to do well. You know, half those aren't going to do well. Well. Most private companies are not drilling today and haven't been drilling over the course of the last two years because they're not making money. Actually, it's pretty hard to get that money. And so when they're drilling, completing these wells, they're making money. Now, do they perform as well as you know, in years past? Maybe not. But at $100 oil, your, your, your returns were pretty good. And you don't need them to perform the same level. So when, when oil prices go up and gas prices go up and natural gas liquids prices go up, a lot of what people call tier two acreage, tier three acres, tier four acreage. Baby gets thrown out with bathwater with that because a lot of privates see opportunity there and they have been not just making money but adding to production. So it's very important to just see the privates are sort of everywhere and they've extended the boundaries of these plays um, and the publics are caught up. And so it's also, I mean, the privates are flexible. They are private companies. They don't have the, the investor pressure, the shareholder pressure, um, and they were able to sort of, you know, go very quickly when the publics were not. And if we look at the rate count, just breaking it out, It's it's very, I mean, it's impressive to see this because in 2018, we're basically at 2018 levels for private rigs. And that is really important to note because there's nobody you could have talked to. um, Probably not a bank, but definitely major private equity firms were convinced that this day was over. Several years ago, they were convinced that the role of the private operators, especially the one and two rig and pop companies, that was over. And that's just not true. And that's why it's really important to appreciate this business continues to evolve. And these little nuances matter a ton. So we're at over 400 rigs, private rigs. We have more private rigs running than we do publics right now. And the publics took a long time to come back, and they're slowly coming back. Um, You know, they probably should have come back a little sooner because now we have $75 oil instead of $100. Um, But they can stay the course, and they can still make money at $75 oil. um, And that's sort of how they work. But it's meaningful when you see that drop and that comeback. And if we just look at that's oil rigs on the left gas rigs on the right so you can see between publics and privates we are we we saw oil companies on the private side really come back for drilling for oil we've seen publics though steadily bring that back Um, and then on the gas side we can really see where gas prices impact quickly. When, the private, when gas prices come down, the private guys are laying off rigs. Um, and we've, we've seen a steady ramp up in the public companies on the gas side. And again, that's because we have so much gas actually being produced from oil. Um, but it's still, it still gets folded in, and it's important to pay attention to. So um, sorry. That is our, this is where we eclipse. So if you're if you're following this stuff closely, um, and being the nerdy person that I am, I do. So it was September where this flipped, where the publics and privates in the Permian were basically in line, and then publics moved out and privates moved down because we started seeing some move in prices. And partly that's also availability, tightness in the market, rampant inflation, and the ability to get people, the ability to get crews, um, everything has been very, very serious. So that's you can see a little bit of a pullback and a flip there. And then this is. I think this is a fantastic chart, and these numbers don't line up, so you have to be careful with that. But if you just look at where were the private companies in the Permian Basin pre-COVID, and where are they now, um, I don't know if anyone, got to, if anyone would have predicted you would have had more privates, than you did more private drilling than you did even at the height in 2018, and you do now. And that is still very impressive. Um, and I'm not sure anyone would have predicted that you would have had half of what you do on the public side. So uh, just zooming in so you can see this a little better, um, this is Permian Basin. Again, reiterating my point, and, and this is the Eagleford. I was just in South Texas, and you can actually see this. Like, if you're driving down there, you see these, prob- they're pretty spread out. But I mean, you see private companies all over the place. Um, we see this, if you look in the Permian Basin, these privates have, you know, I mean, they're across the map, whereas everybody, the publics are caught up. And then in here in the Marcellus, um, you can obviously, I just threw that map up for your benefit, um, also very concentrated as well. And then ducks, so drilled but uncompleted wells, we don't have to spend time arguing on what a duck is. Um, I know there's deep conversations we could nerd out on forever. These are not strategic ducks. This is, I like to show this because this is simply a function of looking at how many holes are being poked in the ground. And so it does show you activity, sheer activity. So drilled but uncompleted wells, I don't care like how many we're waiting on, et cetera, why we're waiting on them. The point is a hole has been, has been poked in the ground. Purple is the privates and public is the is the orange. And you can see, holy moly, we have the private companies have poked a lot of holes in the ground, have a lot of ducks out there, and they are much, much, much wider and bigger in, in terms of vast area and acreage um, than I think a lot of people a lot of people have appreciated over the course of the last few years. And then if we look at um, if we look at well completions and WTI, so I threw all this together, it seems like a lot, but it actually is pretty meaningful. So this is Keeping with the same colors, so private's purple, orange is public, and I've stacked this up. Um, so these are all completions in, in the US, not just horizontal, these are US wall completions in WTI. So you can see we, we haven't come back, you know, if we're looking at the total where that bar is, we haven't come back to our, our pre COVID levels, our highs before. Um, and then the rig count corresponds. So this is the orange is the rig count for publics, purple is the rig count for, for privates. Um, that hasn't quite come back as well. And then WTI is in black. And so you can just see, I mean, obviously, the the privates are responding, um, but all that nice information on one chart. And then if you break it out, this is where you can actually really see that investor pressure, that, that impact to the public companies from the ESG and investor pressure side. And these are the well completions, which to me matter more than the rig count, matter more than anything else is that who is poking the holes in the ground. And that matters if you're a service company for who's actually doing the business. Um, so that's, again, recount count in, is the line in purple. The bar chart is the well completions. And you can see how well that corresponds to WTI for privates. And then how the publics just haven't come back. Um, that's obviously they want to return money to shareholders. They're obviously being this is an anti-oil and gas movement in the public space, people pulling money out left, right, and center um, from public companies. And, um, and now they're starting to come back. But that has a huge impact in terms of just overall activity and production growth. And then that's stacked. Same way to look at it. That's just well completions, public and private. That's Permian. So we have come back in the Permian. Whereas in the whole of the US, if we're looking at it, we haven't seen the well completions come back. But in the Permian Basin, we have. We're basically at pre-COVID levels. Um, and a lot of that has been driven by a ramp up in private activity. Um, and that's why production growth has really come up. But if you that's the breakout for the Permian. You can see private's obviously off to the races. Public companies haven't come back quite yet in terms of the actual well completions. We have not recovered just yet. And then the oil production is the fantastic story here and just incredible. Um, New Mexico, so the Permian Basin, you have the Delaware Basin, you have the Midland Basin. And New Mexico has two counties, Lee and Eddy County. So two counties alone are producing 1.7 million barrels per day. That is more than small OPEC countries. That's more than some medium-sized OPEC countries. Nearly 2 million barrels a day in two counties. It is just absolutely incredible um, that the sheer growth that uh, has taken place here. So that's huge. That's sort of the what to do thing, the not to do and um, and this is where you know if you're looking for correlations from regulatory standpoints and difficulty in, in, in drilling and everything, Colorado is a place to look um, if you're looking for you know synonyms for um, what you're experiencing here in the Marcellus with the inability to build a pipeline, we definitely have a harsh regulatory environment in Colorado, and you can see the impact to Alaskan production, California production, Colorado production is all in the decline um, and that's despite everyone else growing so it doesn't matter if these states don't want to do it. Other folks are doing it. And that's why you're seeing so much activity in the, concentrated in the Permian Basin. And then if we look at productivity, and this is I, this is really important. And I don't know what my time is, so somebody's just going to have to wave to me when you're shutting me down because I know I'm talking too much. But um, so productivity, these are all shale plays together. And this is normalized productivity. So this is 10,000 foot laterals. We've normalized it. And you can see that 2022 is this red line. So not punching above everyone, but right right, sort of in the middle, which is the fact that it's still that high is pretty good, given what I just showed you from all the activity and where all the wells are drilled, and they're not exactly in the tier one acreage or, or whatever people may want to call that. So that's the oil side. The gas side is crushing it. And that's because gas prices have been high, and you can. This is, these are the oil plays. So folks are clearly targeting gas, and we see that. You can hear ConocoPhillips talks about an earnings call. You can actually look at their wells and see where they've targeted gas. You can see that they're prioritizing gas in certain areas over oil. And it's the consequences that are pretty big, because certain operators, like in the Permian Basin, are targeting deeper reservoirs that produce a little more gas. And they, they say that at least they're not foregoing other acreage or other reservoirs that they can go back to later. So, Just very, very significant consequences that we haven't seen in the last 10 years. And the result is high gas output, especially on a normalized basis in your oil plays. And that's just Permian Basin normalized right in line. We're still seeing great production levels. Um, Even with these 3,000 foot laterals, we're not seeing, we expect some diminishing marginal returns. But if you're normalizing productivity and you're seeing it like this, it's telling you that we're not seeing a massive drop off in production despite the acreage boundaries that we're pushing and despite the longer laterals. And that's Appalachian Basin well completion. So the same thing as I was explaining before. So in here in the Marcellus, you guys have seen a steady decline in completions. This is a result of not having a, not the, the worries about hitting pipeline capacity and people slowing down in anticipation. So that's, the, that's what's going on. So the only way this is going to come back and increase um, is with, with more pipeline capacity. And if we look at just the production, though, production has been great. You've hung in there at 35 BCF a day, um, but the actual well count is, and this is a normalized curve again—a 10,000 foot MCF a day curve. You know these wells are pumping out 13 BCF a day, or uh, which, or sorry, 13,000 MCF a day, which is massive. And about 700 wells, 740 wells in 2022, but each year the well count is coming down, um, and that has ramifications for everybody's business and for um, businesses going elsewhere and going into other basins. Hainesville, just by comparison, kind of eaten the Marcellus' lunch in terms of activity and growth and where everybody's going because they do have pipeline capacity. And we have seen Haynesville production go to 16 BCF a day in a heartbeat. Um, and these wells are just monsters. And that's still with, you know, a fraction you're doing this with, you know, 300 and some <coughs> wells over the course of 2022. Um, okay. I don't know how much time I have, but I'm going to rip through the, the U.S. economy and the global economy issue ESG fast. So everybody okay with that? We're still awake and on board. All right. OK, US inflation data today. If you didn't see it, uh, inflation came down to 6.5%. And you can see this down downtick right here. Um, great, super exciting, wonderful. Inflation's coming down. Not so exciting in the fact that this purple line here is uh, shelter data. That's housing. So if the Fed is doing one thing and they're targeting it's housing. Like, that's core inflation, by the way. Uh, housing is a part of your core inflation. So. That hasn't come down at all. It's actually not taking a a beat. That um, food and electricity, electricity prices are this top one. That's really bad. You can see that it's way higher than it was. All these are way higher than they were in 2008. So I think still very problematic. And it's why the Fed is continuing to say, hey, we're going to raise interest rates and we're going to hold it there. And the market's saying, no, you're not. You're going to cut rates. the Fed needs to raise rates and hold it there because if this doesn't go away, this economy is screwed um, and we will have problems going forward. So very, very serious for watching food, watching um, electricity, and also in watching shelter because the Fed raises rates. That means um, interest rates are higher. It's harder to get a mortgage, harder to make a payment on a mortgage. That helps actually drive up um, rental rates. So it gets very tricky um, on how to actually balance all this. Um, And then I think, the black swans are sort of out there. And Jamie Dimon has talked a lot lately, been very positive on the oil and gas industry. Um, but actually in the earnings call, they said a couple things. And I think it was a very clear articulation. I'm not sure everybody took home as much as I did. But he said a couple things. And he talked about you know, the US consumer is pretty good. They have a little bit of cash. But basically said, OK, that cash is going to, everyone's going to spend through that cash pretty quickly because we have inflation. And we can do the math on that of you know, when people spend all their savings. We're already seeing credit card debt go way up. We're already seeing savings come way down. So this is already taking place. But he, so he talks about checking accounts getting depleted sometime mid next year. And then he talks about, you know, we have inflation, we have higher mortgage rates, so we have higher interest rates, we still have inflation, we have oil volatility, we have a war going on. I mean, all those things are pretty serious. So if anyone can say they understand all those well and they can predict the future, you know, they can't. And all those create massive uncertainties and massive issues within the global economy. Um, but he just points that out and then he talks about sovereign debt levels and essentially says those are the uncertainties that we know about today and in the future and those are just the ones that we know about they're not about all the other things and the interplay of all those which are very serious Um, in the US here we also have a problem we people have not gone back to work since COVID we have a massive fiscal lag that's overhanging not just in the US but the, in the entire global economy where it doesn't matter where you go in the world people will say we just don't have enough people working. I was in the UK in December and everybody was telling me every taxi driver told me it's because it's because of Brexit, you know, everybody left because of Brexit. And I was like, well, we don't didn't have Brexit in America and we still have people a problem with people getting back to work as well. So, this is a global systemic issue that came from pumping 27 trillion dollars into the global economy both from um, fiscal and monetary stimulus in just in the course of a handful of months over 2020, huge amount of money that's created inflation and it's created problems. But in the U.S., we still have 3.6% unemployment. Also, why the Fed needs to continue to raise rates because people haven't gone back to work and we, we have an imbalance um, and we still have high demand. And these are this line just shows you uh, job openings, right? We still have a pretty big, uh, pretty big gap, and it hasn't. It's coming down, but it's not coming down to where it was before. So we still have a lot of job openings. And then these lines, important you, know, you don't have to get lost here. That red line is your labor productivity, your output per hour. And you can see it has come down, not something you want to see. You don't want to see output per hour coming down because you're seeing total compensation go way up. So we're paying more and we're getting less. That is also very bad for the economy and very, very bad for the sort of the go forward. And simply, there are not enough people looking for work. This is your number of unemployed people per job opening. And so pre, in February of 2020, it was basically 1 to 1, 0.8. Call it 1 to 1. Now it's 0.6. So you have half a person for every job opening. It, the math just doesn't work. And that's, that is why this is really problematic. We also have debt. So last year, and I mean we've, we continued to add massive household debt. So you guys probably know we had this you know, big, everybody went crazy during COVID, and everybody had to buy a house. And not only did they have to buy a house, they had to buy a really big house. And they bought it in a place that they thought they could work from home forever. Really nice idea um, in theory. May not work out um, in the future, but huge household debt. Yes, lower mortgage rates, but everybody bought nice homes. Everybody took equity out in their homes. Everybody built a kitchen, and they built a yard, and they got a pool. and they. They did it all, and this contributed to huge household debt. And so that growth, we have not seen that high of debt growth since 2007. And 2007, obviously, is is the housing crash and everything. So we're much higher than we were there. So the, the health of the U.S. economy and that debt, even at low mortgage rates, is still a massive amount, especially if you start seeing rising unemployment and people start losing their jobs. So credit card balances are up. I don't care what people say, like this is your credit card debt. I just pulled this today, this morning um, and it came down and it's, it's back up. We are way above where we were in 2007, 2008, and that's household savings. So household savings are being depleted. People are spending credit cards to, on their credit cards with incredibly high interest rates. I was, I was uh, missed my payment by uh, half a day because I didn't get the, the reminder on my Apple Pay. And I pay my credit card fully every month. I have a credit score of 850. and um, I pay in full and I was dinged 50 bucks for a being six hours late on my credit card. And I have a perfect credit score and I've never not paid a bill. That, If you can imagine people not paying their bill for a month and having a few thousand bucks on it, that's not 50 bucks. We're talking hundreds of dollars in interest payments. So this is really, really serious and not something that anyone um, is talking to at, at a severe length. And that's going to eat into people's purchasing power, obviously. Now, if you take one slide away, and this is messy and everything, but if you remember nothing from this presentation, I hope it's at least this one. And this is, um, love these colors again, I don't know how this happened, purple and, purple and orange, but they're there. Um, this is inflation, interest rates, and unemployment. So black is unemployment, inflation is in orange, and purple is your, uh, purple is your un- unemployment, sorry, or Fed funds, or black is Fed funds rate. Inflation is orange and unemployment's in purple. And you can see that our inflation in the 1980s was 14.7 4. percent in May of 1980, 1981. We have a 19.1 percent interest rate. That's really high. I'm not saying we're going to go there, um, but you didn't peak in unemployment until 80, 19, in November of 82. So the point is, it takes a while for this to happen, and so unemployment doesn't peak till two years later, and you have nearly 11 percent unemployment. So we haven't felt the pains of what's going on right now, and that is very important to think from a spending standpoint, from a business standpoint, from an economic standpoint. Um, we've also never felt high oil prices and high inflation. I mean we just haven't. This this is dating back into the 1970s. This is crude oil prices and this is high inflation. So yes, we had high inflation but we didn't have high crude oil prices. And then we were like we were smooth in the nineties and we had even when we had high oil prices recently, well we can all remember it, we had low inflation. And now we have high inflation, this is on average, just for 22, that's inflation and oil prices. And yes, that's coming down, but that's gonna linger in the system for a while. And I think that's extremely consequential. And it means that your most financial advisors have never experienced this either. Uh, U.S. mortgage rates, people can say they're coming down. We're at six and change. If you Google and put it, if you and I, anybody in this room was probably to get a mortgage, it's gonna be north of 7%. The problem with that is that no one can afford the monthly payment. No one's actually getting approved because they can't afford the monthly payment because it's so high. Um, So even if it's a $500,000 mortgage, it's huge. Um, And that's very, very serious for the housing market. You have a lot of places that nothing's moving right now. I mean, right? It's kind of like the bid-ask spread in oil and gas assets. Yes, it might be the right price, but mortgages too high. So things are for sale, but nothing's actually selling. Um, The buying conditions for large household durables. This is the Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey. You can see it's. It's improved, but this is the buying condition for large household durables. So if you listen to Walmart earnings calls or Walmart r- rhetoric and stuff, they talk a lot about the large household durables as well and how bad that market is. This is your refrigerators and your big stuff, right? That was great during COVID. Everybody was redoing their kitchens and buying that stuff. That has that has cooled. And with high interest rates, um, one, it's a bad sign that this looks so bad because it means everybody was buying their refrigerators on credit. And two, it means that they don't have the money to buy the refrigerator, period. Um, but it's at a record low, and that's very bad. And then our um, buying conditions for houses are also at a record low. So we're talking way worse than, um, than 2008. It it's, looks really bad. And this is what I think the stock market is not appreciating. They're not appreciating that the bottom half of America is, is does not have the savings; has already spent through it, and simply is going to move the needle. And the worst part is the job layoffs are happening in the top half. So we're seeing the white collar unemployment begin to rise. So we're seeing you know Amazon layoffs and Salesforce layoffs and Microsoft layoffs and Goldman Sachs layoffs. Um, so that's we're, we're tipping around here in, in a unique period that we have never seen before. Um, this is just home prices and oil demand in the U.S. They actually do rise and fall together. Um, they sort of had continued to move up last year. But this was 2008, and you can see how they basically move in lockstep. Uh, you, this is global oil demand. Um, you can see it doesn't really move huge amounts. Even during the 2008 financial crisis, we had a little dip. We, we lost a couple million barrels a day of oil demand. The reality, though, is that we were the ones that led that drop in oil demand. We, we consumed 20 million barrels a day in the US, and we lost a few million barrels a day. Um, during the 1980s, we lost. 3.7 million barrels a day. It took nearly a decade for that demand to recover. And then um, we lost 2.5 million barrels a day in 2008. And it took years for that to come back. And we're just sort of at that comeback point. So it is really, really meaningful to think about sustained high oil prices and sustained um, high inflation and the impact it can have on demand. And we've sort of bucked this trend recently because this the revenge of COVID and people driving and everybody wanting to get out. But it can still be there. And it means if your economy is slowing, you're just not going to use as much diesel necessarily because you're not going to be shipping as much on, on trains and FedEx and packages and all that stuff. OK, um, global economy. And I promise I'm wrapping up soon. Um, global economy downgrades. IMF to World Bank, everybody's downgrading the global economic output, so GDP, gross domestic product, is, all de- is decreasing across the globe because of all the reasons I just mentioned, because of high food, high fuel, high inflation, you name it. World Bank just came out with a report two days ago. It is worth a read. It is extremely damning um, in terms of just basically what I- inflation has meant for the global economy and how bad the global economic picture looks. Basically, they've downgraded economic growth for the entire world by a, 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 almost 2%. Or 1.5 to 2%. So the war in Ukraine is still ongoing. Um, This is a map of the war in Ukraine from February 24th when it started last year, and this is a map now. The point is, it hasn't ended. Um, We don't have a, you know, how is this going to end? Would Putin accept just a bit of acreage here? I don't know. I don't think it's going to look like that. That has a lot of Precedent, I mean, Ukraine isn't basically saying they're willing to accept that. The point is it's still going on even even if, uh, depending on what you hear, what you believe on how bad the troops are doing in, in Russia, they've spent the, the course of this winter basically attacking energy and energy infrastructure. Um, and, and you have over a third of Ukraine that has been without power for the winter. So very, very meaningful in terms of how long this war is gonna go on and how, how much this is gonna impact Europe um, and sort of bringing Europe to their knees and keeping them uh, very distracted I think for a long time and you can see how the benefits could be if you're China and you want to do something else say in the in South China Sea or something or something with Taiwan Europe's pretty distracted they're not going to you know be jumping in and, and ready to go um, and China is funding this war with with uh, Russia's war with Ukraine um, so those are that's really big and you can see the impacts of this of, we've had over 10% inflation in the UK. Um, it's going to be one of the worst recessions that they've had in a long time. And this is their energy prices. This is just pound, uh, pa- sorry, that's German electricity prices. My apologies, but pounds look the same. Um, you can see the ramp up. It's, it's more than quadrupled in most of these places. Even when it's come down, they're much higher than they were before. So, hugely consequential in terms of uh, the actual inflation and what they're paying from a household basis. And this has been, if this is, Massive growth in fertilizer and food costs. And again, this is the global economy. If we think of just going to the grocery store ourselves, what this means for if you're Africa, if you're the Middle East, or if most of your income is going to food and fuel, um, this is really problematic because this is just indices that show you the growth in food and fertilizer costs. Fertilizer costs obviously have been impacted by high natural gas prices or the inability to get natural gas prices um, in the Middle East and Europe, but Also, it's it's what impacts food, the actual food output. So what's happened is a lot of countries have been unable to farm with fertilizer uh, because it costs too much. And therefore, they're getting lower yields on their crops. And therefore, they're going to have less food output. And this is going to continue to cycle. So I don't think the food inflation story is quite done, especially for the rest of the world, not um, maybe outside of the US. The gas flows into Europe, these are the major conduits that you bring in gas to Europe. Essentially, there's two major pipelines, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, which never flowed actually flowed gas um, into Europe. Nord Stream 1, Russia stopped flowing gas into Europe quite a while, several months ago. Um, And then those pipelines were sabotaged. I wholeheartedly believe that was a pretty sophisticated operation to sabotage those pipelines. That was done by Russia. Um, You had to know those pipelines pretty intimately to do that. Um, And it's a pretty big statement because that's Russia telling Europe, we're not going to flow gas in those pipelines, even if you want us to in the future. that's done um that's meaningful because most europeans i think the uh, on the official side and the government side believe that that gas would begin to flow in the future and there's still some more levers to pull i mean there's still gas flowing through ukraine bit shocking because you would think they might go after that first Um, so there's definitely a few more levers to pull in terms of taking all the gas out of europe Um, but right now those volumes are it's it's pretty small and that's why they've why we're importing so much gas now this was the ability for a less economic Russia is not a global economic superpower, okay? They they produce a lot of natural gas, but they produce half the natural gas that we do. Um, But this is case in point of what not to do. This is all the leverage that Europe gave them. Europe consumed 55 billion cubic feet per day of gas, and they produced only 20 billion cubic feet per day of gas. So they're exposed to everything in the middle, 35 BCF a day of gas. And lo and behold, Their exposure to Russia was 16 BCF a day just on the pipe side. And then they got another couple BCF a day via liquefied natural gas imports. Pretty big. So Russia had all the leverage they needed in the world to do this war. And Europe completely gave that to them. And that is because of their very aggressive green policies, pretending that they're not consuming natural gas while stopping to produce their own natural gas and and grabbing renewables from China and throwing into their grid as quick and as fast as they can and really exposing themselves to these price spikes because the renewables didn't actually work um, when they needed them to. Russian production has not fallen off a cliff, despite what everyone thought. Um, That isn't to be said that this year we could lose more production, but these revisions in Russian production have been revised throughout the course of the year. They've sort of hung in there over 10 million barrels per day. They are getting massive discounts to their crude, so whatever you hear about the price caps and stuff in Europe, It's kind of irrelevant because they've been taking massive discounts on the crude. China's still taking their crude. India's still taking their crude. Essentially, the crude's just been rerouted around the world. Um, China's used to this. They take a million and a half barrels a day from Iran. Iran's been under sanctions for years. They don't care. Um, These are, this is Russian total supply. This is what IEA said they were gonna drop off production in that dotted line over the summer. That didn't happen. Um, That's Russian total supply. Obviously, recently, this is a fresh slide, didn't happen. And all this tells you here is that um, the products, the uh, refined products. Europe has, n- has not stopped taking refined products from Russia. Um, they have stopped taking more of the, crude, but only the crude via ships. They haven't stopped taking the crude via pipe. So things are just getting moved around, rerouted. Um, for all Europe's talk, they haven't really done much. Um, OPEC production has come down a little bit, but you can see Saudi Arabia production in September was over 11 million barrels per day, pretty high. This is, they're gonna have record high output for the year, north of 10 million barrels a day. Um, if you remember how much we're producing, we're producing 12.4 million barrels a day. So again, 12.4 million barrels a day compared to now they're um, 10.5 million barrels a day, um, which they're doing because they they want higher prices. So global recount, again, I think this is the new normal. This was where we were at, you know, 2010, you know, the early pre 2014. We came down here. This is where we were. This is where we're at now. We're probably going to level off there. Um, and I don't think we're going to. I don't think crude output. Um yes we need more investment, but I don't think crude output's gonna be the problem right here because we have demand issues. This is Chinese crude imports. Just it's between ten and twelve million barrels per day is what China imports. Everybody thinks China's gonna They ripped off the Band-Aid on Zero-COVID and they're going to be off to the races and China's going to save the world. I wouldn't bank on this. I think there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, It's pretty messy. And the China-Russia relationship is very, very serious. Um, China has funded this war in Ukraine. Their trade with Russia has gone up massively over the course of 2019 through now. Um, They are, they get really cheap stuff from Russia. They are getting, they've increased their gas imports by a third, they've increased their crude oil imports, they've increased their grain imports. The one country that's benefited from this war is China on many, many fronts, Um, and that's because also renewable imports from Europe have gone up 85% from China. So Europe has bought 85% more solar panels and more transmission lines and more renewable stuff all from China over the course of this war. That's Russian exports to China. You can see, obviously, those are way up. Um, Okay. So the International Energy Agency came out, and I promise you I'm almost done. International Energy came out um, this year with their, their big little their forecast that they always do, which gets most of us pretty frustrated because they're just not a reputable organization anymore. But I want to, this, this line up here is from 2020. So the International Energy Agency was an entity to explain crude oil markets to people. And they put out a monthly report that some of us have to pay a lot of money for. Um, And they said in 2020, the IEA has made its own position clear. Since the scale of the COVID-19 crisis began to emerge, we have been leading the calls to put clean energy at the heart of the economic response to ensure a secure and stable recovery. Well, it tells you right there, they have now become an advocacy organization. So everything they're saying now, you gotta put a big question mark against it. And then now during this, Crisis. So this is October. The report came out, and they said the world is struggling with too little clean energy, not too much. Faster clean energy transitions would have helped to moderate the impact of this crisis, and they represent the best way out of it. And that is just completely not factual. Um, renewables, in terms of the intermittent, in terms of wind and solar, which is basically the renewables we have, they j- just don't produce the power and have too much intermittency. So that's a, nearly a complete lie, but it's definitely not factual, and it, it's very, it's flabbergasting and amazing. This is the oil demand forecast that they say we need to do to get to net zero. And this is why the net zero is such a big problem and why, why companies need to be very careful with this in promoting net zero. Because net zero is what the, IA, they're calling this for demand to go from 100 million barrels a day to 25 million barrels a day. That's, you can't do that, it's, it's nearly impossible. And they're calling for massive near term drop offs in demand that just aren't realistic. Um, and. I mean, we shut down the global economy in 2020, and they're calling for more than that. That would bankrupt the, the, not just the industry, but it would bankrupt the, um, the global economy. So it's, it's simply not realistic. And then the promotion of all this on the ESG side is a really big deal. And this is why I think it's really important. It's really important for folks here in the Marcellus to understand that, yes, you can promote gas, and you can say coal is bad. But if you, if you listen to Bloomberg and you just watch commercials, you'll see this commercial that talks about you know beyond Beyond Coal. And if you look up the Beyond Coal thing, it's funded by Bloomberg and and different entities. So it's Bloomberg Philanthropies. So this is your news organization who's putting on these commercials. And if you look it up, it's not just Beyond Coal, it's Beyond Coal and gas. So if you stab the knife in the back of coal, they turn and stab that back in the knife of natural gas as well. They don't want, and I don't even call it fossil fuels, it's traditional fuels. It's crude oil, it's natural gas, and it's coal. There is a movement against that. And the consequences of that are so big, because during COVID, during 2020, we lost a record amount of energy production. And I know people are anti-coal, but from an energy security standpoint, it is really serious, because China's producing so much coal, and they power their grid with coal. And if we are reducing our grid reliability, we're reducing our domestic power reliability. And again, I have to put this I heart zero, because I have a huge problem with it. Um, The energy transition, the cost of it, and I know I'm way, way over time, so I sincerely apologize. Um, the cost of energy transition, estimated to be $276 trillion. That's over $9 trillion a year. These are ridiculous numbers. No one's ever going to hit it, even when the economy was good. Um, global power generation by fuel, they, everybody's saying we're reducing our consumption. We're actually not. So this is our global power generation by fuel. You can see the black is coal. Um, the red is natural gas. Um, the renewables is that chunk in green at the bottom. Chinese coal production is just completely off to the races. They're producing record amounts, over 400 million tons of coal. Now, that should be a warning flag to a lot of folks of just the ramp up in that, and what they intend to do with it, and why, and why they're prioritizing domestic energy security so much. This is a very cool map. This is the, just a heat generation map of all the generation. And you can see their coal generation, their power, their grid. And this is why we could kill ourselves all all day long fighting CO2 emissions in the US. And it won't matter a lick. because. They have 8,500 terawatt hours of power generation. 65% of it's coming from coal. Over 5,500 terawatt hours is coal-fired power generation. They added 1,000 terawatt hours of coal-fired power generation last year alone. We in the US have 878 terawatt hours of coal-fired power generation, so not even a fraction of what they, less than what they added last year alone. So you can't compete if it's about CO2. It's not about CO2. It's about energy security. Chinese coal-fired power plants, you've got 200 in construction. You have over 3,000 operating. You have another 121 announced, another 106 permitted. It just goes on and on. And these these are real numbers, so it's serious. What this means for domestic energy security and economic security and national security is extremely meaningful. Because this is UK power generation by fuel. Their power generation has come down. And it should be a red flag to anyone that a major economic Democratic country is dropping power generation. Um, it means that they can do less. Their output will be less. Yes, they're consuming less, but that's not good for your economy. That's Russia. Russia has more power generation output. That's not a thriving, robust, you know, diverse economy. That's Russia. But it means something from a power standpoint of what they can actually do, what they can produce, um, and what they were able to do. This is Europe and the U.S. power generation to, combined by fuel, and that's Chinese power generation. So we have. We have less. We, we have less power generation in the U.S. and Europe total than China has. Um, so that's your West against the rest. China dominates the solar and battery manufacturing industry. They have the, they process all of the rare earth minerals because it's a very dirty and intensive and extractive process. Um, They do it with forced labor, so they have free labor and cheap labor, um, and they don't have the environmental standards so they can process all that. So anything, not just for renewables, but if we're using graphite, if we're needing, um, if we're needing copper, if we're needing any of this stuff, it's coming through China. And that has very serious long-term consequences for um, supply chains and actually getting this stuff, especially from a military standpoint. Uh, That's the solar exports I told you about that's ramped up. And then just lastly, um, this is Chinese industrial electricity generation, which eclipsed US and European total electricity consumption. This is your industrial output. Now, ours is flatlined a long time ago, but the point is China's is still increasing. And I would throw out to the audience and, and folks when I explain this is what do they want to use that output for? Is it just to make renewables forever and just to sell us solar panels? Um, And I would argue it's probably not, that your ability to produce other things, including military equipment, um, is pretty high as well. So with that, I really do apologize for going over, and thank you. you Oh, sure, yeah.
0: But maybe we'll grab a couple questions. Uh Does anybody have any questions? Uh, Bob? ESG or lead of the small company, how does that affect what's going on? I mean, a lot of times the smaller companies right now aren't going through the ESG
1: process. And the public companies, the smaller public companies? Oh. Yeah, it's still impacting them, um, and the reason I say this because I mean they're still dealing with it from a banking side, and they're still dealing it with from the investor side and how they're getting their money, and they still have to hit certain targets. It's not nearly as much, um, but they still have to do it. And the reason I say it's it, if you start un, you know looking, breaking out the layers and looking deeper into that, they don't have the same compliance that you say you do in Europe. But it's all setting a precedent for it to increase, and so if it starts being it starts getting harder for medium and small companies that are public to invest in oil and gas, that's gonna that is consequential for our actual production. So I think it's very real. It's still there. It's not I don't it's waning, and um, we're, we're not seeing it as much as the height of the ESG craze that, because most of these renewables, don't, they didn't make money before, but at high interest rates, they don't make any money. Um, and it's really hard to actually invest in this stuff. So there, we are starting to see money, I think, from the biggest hedge funds, from the biggest money in the world, is pulling back out of all this green craziness. Um, but I think the impacts from a banking standpoint, if we continue to allow, and that's why I think as public companies, public CEOs need to start standing up and pushing back. And making it clear what they are doing and why they're doing positive things and the, the impact to it. Because uh, so if they're just taking it and, and not defending themselves or sort of eating it, that's not working. Um, so I, I do think if you don't sort of you know push back against it, it's going to rise. Um, but I, they're being impacted from. I, if they could get more capital, they would have done more. Um, and I would bet that we could find a hand, easily find a handful of medium and and small public companies that have been n- not able to do as much as they wanted to do because they are public and because they have been restricted in their funding. I'll, I'm letting him take questions. So. Gosh, Brian, it's like you work at a bank or something. Um, yeah. yeah, no, those are great questions. Um, OK, so calling a bottom on prices. Um, I would say that I, you know, I'm, I have been more bearish on prices. I believe it was at your event when uh, Toby Rice pushed me to say call out on oil prices. And I had been saying, I had been saying 80 over the course of last year. We closed at 75. So I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm just saying the, the economics did not suggest we would be higher than 80. Um, in, from a demand standpoint. That being said, volatility in trading and everything, we could we could ratchet higher, we could ratchet lower. I don't. Everybody's now calling for. We're seeing a lot of banks call for 110. Don't think it's there. Um, and I don't think we're going to bottom. We're not going to crash in prices because we have enough demand holding in there. This looks a little more like 2008 style oil correction um, than it does like a sustained pain in in oil prices. And the concerns I have with that are one, if, if we stay at these levels, if we stay at the 75 range or whatever, we could easily go lower. We can, we can go in the 60s. There's enough economic headwinds out there. We can, we can go lower. I don't think we can go down to 55 and stay there. It seems too low, um, but I mean, obviously I can, picking floors a little harder. Um, Henry Hub doesn't look great. Uh, and that's if we, produ- if we continue to ratchet production and we get a little warmer weather and where our natural gas storage levels are up, um, yeah that's going to come down that's going to keep coming down I mean we, we understand natural gas side and can predict a little more easily um, I don't think there's a, the upside there just isn't there from a growth standpoint so people are calling for this upside it doesn't exist there, there's no, there's too many economic headwinds that were last year they took a while for people to realize and they exist today so the upside is there you're right that the long-term potential of production um, is impacted by you know higher prices because if you, if you're restricting to the previous question, if you're restricting capital right now, um, that's going to have impacts on the future. I I want everybody to be careful with that, though, because I would say, again, the last 10 years of the share revolution, we've done more with less every single time. Every single time it's been restricted, prices have dropped, we've done more with less. And I think globally, we've seen output go up as well. I mean, we are doing more with less in the US, even with all the pains of inability to get a truck driver, you know a truck driver quitting on site for a location. I mean, not be able, being able to get your frac sand in the beginning of 22. Yet everyone is drilling completing these wells. It, even as painful as it is, it still was happening. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic in the ability for the rock to keep giving and the ability for operators to maneuver and us to get smarter, because that continues to happen in this business, um, doesn't mean that we won't have issues and, and upside prices for restricted output, especially if the world continues to do what they're doing and handing the geopolitical levers over to China. Um, but I just want to caution folks to not go, you, not completely go down that road. That is a scenario. It's not the only scenario. I guess we'll probably
0: do one more question
1: I think it's unleash LNG is great. Um, I'm I'm all for the messaging and, and Toby's been on my podcast and we we battled it out and bantered and um, at at Brian's forum um, over last spring. Um, I agree with the unleash the LNG in in principle, but um, I don't think I think that CEOs need to be more public companies. I'm not calling out Toby or anyone. Public companies need to. Uh, Stop talking about CO2. This is not about CO2. This is about energy production. When you're emphasizing the CO2, that gives levers for everyone because you can say, "Okay, well, we're doing this natural gas, and it's great." But then other companies are when when public companies say this, it's kind of like having legal precedent. When you're pushing this narrative, pushing it and pushing it, you know, the banks are doing this and everything. You you are Telling people you don't like this is about CO2 emissions when it's not. So you're impacting the ability to continue driving production higher. And the people who don't want to invest in you in the first place, they don't want to invest in you. They don't like you anyway because you're oil and gas. Period. There's a there's a massive amount of money and people and and um, entities that are trying to push that money out of the system. So you're kind of fighting a battle that you're not going to win in the first place. Unleashing LNG is great, but you have to build a pipeline to unleash LNG. And um, we have to build a pipeline. We have to do everything in our power to build a pipeline. And when I was in DC in the first part of my career, you know, all I did, I, I saw oil companies, Pioneer Natural Resources, Continental Resources, you name it, they were in DC every week and they were on the hill and they were with all the think tanks because uh, they were lobbying for crude oil exports. And, I don't know if every single oil company and every single gas company is in D.C. every week lobbying for a crude oil pipeline um, and actually linking it back to geopolitics and explaining how important this is for American energy security, American economic security, American grid stability, um, and the ability for actually to to not just fight a war, but actually to entertain one and, and, and live through it. I mean, this is way bigger than. You know, just, uh, I mean, the consequences of not building a pipeline are huge, but I don't think these programs in terms of getting a pipeline built are, they're not far enough. And I don't think, uh, while unleashing the LNG is good, you can't unleash it unless you build a pipeline. So it needs to be build a pipeline and unleash the LNG, in my opinion.
0: Thank you, Tricia. just to close out um